The housing affordability crisis has been front of mind in recent months with the release of the federal government inquiry findings in the Falinski report, followed closely with the election and a number of pitches to first home buyers. In this episode, we look into how some of these new initiatives stack up. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today we're talking about some of the recent initiatives to help first home buyers. Will they work? Are any of them any good? And if so, who stands to benefit the most? But before we get into that, what is your special house this week, Megan? It oh, looks look at rather it. interesting. Look at it. It's actually not a house. I've gone into buildings now because I've run out of really interesting houses. Oh. Um, so this one is the wing-shaped Zayed National Museum in the United Arab Emirates, and it's on a on a, an island, as you can probably see. Um, and it is it showcases the the history of um, their culture and uh, where they've moved through to. So I would imagine that would be a fascinating place to visit. Mm. And it does look like wings, like insects, doesn't wings. it? It's yeah. sort of like a cross between the Sydney Har- you know, the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, it's got a, it's got meets that a dragonfly to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like it. If you can imagine that. So if you can't imagine that, <laughs> you can't just Google have a look it. on the video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are we talking about? We're talking about affordability initiatives for first home buyers. Yeah, look, let's kick off by saying we don't think that um, what is proposed or the governments of yesterday or today are really that serious about making it easier for first home buyers to get into the market. I mean, they're, they're really good at making announcements and a little bit of, you know, awe and, 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 and uh, you know, look at me, this is what we're going to do. But do they really <laughs> help? really really are they helping or are they designed to make it seem like they're helping now veronica you're not cynical at all not at all (laughs) i think the main issue with these uh incentives most incentives for first home buyers they do actually drive up demand even if it's a small amount you know ten thousand a year is still ten percent of what used to be the average first home buyers purchasing per annum so it's significant Mm. um and of course it's all sort of in a a third now about a third of home buyers are, are first home buyers at the moment. Really, that high? Mm, so we've mm, gone up. Mm. So the thing is, with that, of course, is that 
Uh, yeah, actually, that would be about right. Sorry, about there's roughly around 600,000 um, properties transact in a year. And I know last year, I think we went up to 160,000 first home buyers. Well, that is a lot. Mm. So when you've got a large segment of the market and then you're adding sort of another 10% or so to that segment, then it does have an impact on prices because you're adding to demand either by enabling people to buy sooner or giving them more money to spend, but the mm. governments haven't been doing much about supply. And you can't count sort of encouraging downsizers to sell as really helping supply because, A, our first home buyers are really going to be buying those properties anyway, and, B, unless they're going into a nursing home, they're actually going to buy something else. They need to go into something else, and usually it's a smaller home at a lower mm. price. They yeah. might be competing with first home buyers. Yeah. So that's I, not I necessarily other, going to help. The other thing, Veronica, is is that often first-time buyers are competing with investors. They're at a very similar price range in some markets. Mm. Um, and, and there's not, you know, there's not a lot of investors that have been in the marketplace for the last couple of years. We're recording this in May 2022. Investors have been largely absent, which has given first-time buyers a little bit of a run and a little bit of um, extra supply to choose from. But investors are now coming back a little stronger into the marketplace and, and, and taking up some of that traditional first home buyer type property. Um, so we've got two two competing um, sort of sets of buyers looking at very similar type properties. Yeah, and when you drive up demand, really only the very first people who take advantage of that new initiative to get into the market will actually benefit from the new initiative. Mm. I mean, we've seen this with, with grants when they've been released, sort of the first time grants have been released over the years and prices actually rise to match very quickly and then often exceed mm the amount of that grant or benefit. So, and in fact, we've actually talked all about first home buy grants and the deposit guarantee scheme back in episode six. So we're not going to go over old ground here, but please go back and listen to that episode if you want to understand them better. Yeah. Look, for this episode, we wanted to look more at some of the more recent initiatives. So these aren't mentioned in the earlier episode because, of course, things changing all the time. We're updating the information. Um, so in particular, co-ownership schemes and deposit accelerators Veronica, I we're not going to talk about this one. <laughs> we're not going to talk about this one in today's podcast. But last night, I I watched Nine News present a segment, news segment. I tell you, on uh, the Tinder app for home first home buyers. Oh. Have you heard of this? You know what? I'm not sure, but there's a lot out there in this oh, prep tech space. What is it called? Just run. Oh, run. my God. It'd be mortifying. <laughs> I can only think. Ching. It's matching first. I digress, but honestly, it's matching first home buyers who don't know each other with each other to co-purchase a property. <gasps> oh, God. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, Ew. right. Right. Yuck. And do, do you know what the, oh, the line was? There could be nothing wrong with that. <laughs> the risk-free way of getting into the market. No, what? no, 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 no. This is not risk. This is the riskiest thing I've ever what heard. Could go wrong? Imagine <laughs> going into a lending situation with an individual who you've never met. You have no idea of what their um, financial now is. You, you do not know anything about their spending patterns. And you are, and this is what most people don't understand, you are 100%, 100% liable for that loan, not just the 50% that you might borrow, 100%. So if they don't pay, you have to. It's bad enough if you're in a relationship with someone and you're the saver and they're the spender, let alone just <laughs> random. Can you imagine, can you, oh. imagine um, you know, contacting through the Tinder app going, your payment's late, uh, oh. what are you going to do about that? And you get ghosted. 
That'd be fun. Imagine that. Anyway, that that was not part of our topic, but it was so topical Mm. that I just had to throw it in there. So so word of warning, that is not a risk-free way to get into the property market. A big, big black mark against that one in our view. Okay, so let's talk about some of these co-ownership schemes because this is where the government effectively goes into partnership with the home buyer. And so uh, Victoria... um, Actually, the Victorian government launched a scheme there recently, and now we can expect a, a federal s- scheme since Labor actually launches their part of their election pitch, pitch and mm. then they got in. So I guess we should unpack. We'll talk about Victorian scheme as well because there's some differences, some similarities. Um, and let's unpack the Labor's shared equity scheme first. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kick off right, well, there? Look, as it stands now, and I am going to date this, this is the 25th of May. So as it stands now, this is not legislation, this is just a, a policy pitch. Yep. Um, what is proposed is the government will cover 30% for existing or established properties or 40% for brand new um, of the cost of a property. So the purchase cost of a property. There's initially going to be 10,000 spots made available in the scheme and it will be open to individuals earning less than $90,000, that's an individual, or couples earning less than $120,000. Now, like everything else, there are price caps, Veronica. Mm -hmm. And they do depend on where you are looking to buy. And so they're obviously going to be more expensive in the expensive markets and less so in the less expensive. They range from, in Sydney, the cap is $950,000, which sounds like a lot of money, but is not much in Sydney. Mm. And they go down to, so there's various tiers, but at the lowest point, $400,000 for if you're going to buy in regional WA, South Australia or Tassie. Now, we're going to put some links in the show notes here so you can actually read up on these. There's various tables in there. I'm going to flag that WA thing there for a minute because WA has a scheme which we'll talk about coming up and they're different. there's some fundamental differences to the price caps in WA for a WA-run scheme versus uh, versus for WA from a federal run scheme. And and we'll we'll highlight that in a moment. You'll know why I'm going, oh. oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> now, what I think is good about these schemes, there's a few things that I think are good, actually. I, mm. I don't like that they give you more for brand new because anything that encourages you to buy brand new is is risky. But I do like that they do. Helpful for the construction industry. Well, yes, and, and you're going to need that extra 10% because you're paying a premium for the fact that it is brand new and potentially mm. not going to get capital growth for a while. Or There's lots of risks around that. <laughs> um, so, you know, we won't labour that point. They don't restrict this to pure first-home buyers. They basically say that it's available for anyone who doesn't currently own a property. So, that, you know, we've got quite it's a few people one, who are our listeners and also have been our students who've yeah. been through, you know, relationship breakups for argument's sake, there's an example, mm. and find themselves back out there being effectively being a first home buyer, even though they're not a first home buyer. They've had a property before. So first home buyer on my own or a first home buyer in this country or a first home buyer, um, you know, in this relationship. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like not pure. But so I do think that's great because it, it's all about then helping Australians own homes mm. as opposed to only first home buyers. So I think that's that's a nice thing. Um, it, it does open up the parameters a little bit more than many of the other schemes do, and I, I guess that's where we think there's some positivity um, at, at the surface level. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, that whilst they've got price caps across the country, varying degrees based on the value of properties in those areas or prices of properties in those areas, the income is 
fixed regardless of where you mm. are. Mm. So that means really anybody who's not buying in Sydney is probably better off, you know, not buying somewhere where um, a lot of people are earning more than you and where prices are expensive. So if you've got that sort of income in a regional area, that's quite a lot of money. Yeah compared, you know, dollar for dollar than it is if you're living in a in a metropolis mm. with that sort of money. So you're buying power and and you, 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 all the things are lined up for you to actually do better out of this sort of scheme if you're living in a regional area, I think. Yeah, and, and of course your borrowing, borrowing capacity is better if your, your income mm. is better. But uh, buyers in the, under this proposal will be left to purchase the remainder of the property with a minimum deposit of 2%. So you just can't go in with nothing. You know, you, you have to have actually pull, pulled some money together um, and, and would not be required to pay lenders mortgage insurance. Now, this is a really positive thing for a lot of people who are, are very shy of the concept, some, uh, concept of lenders mortgage insurance, which, of course, if you go back through some of our um, previous podcasts, you'll know that we don't say don't pay it. We say look at all the options and see if it is a possibility that might suit you depending on your strategy and, and time in life. So, so, But what this does is allow you to, to avoid it. Yeah, and we will get into the pros and cons, you know, a little bit further on. I have to say a con, though. One thing that stands out for me is that, you know, and because the government will put forward a percentage of the value of the property or the purchase price of the property, they're not paying that proportion of the costs, you know. So if you are paying stamp duty and, and those other costs, you've got to sump up for those. Now, typically, say that. Mm. they... Um, add up to around about 5% of the purchase price. Mm. So if you just saved up a 5% deposit and then you use all that money to, um, you know, pay for all those costs, well, if you've only saved up 2%, then, you know, you've got zero, you're minus equity from day one. Like, you yeah. know, you sort of got to be very careful here anyway. Like, yeah. This is what I'm saying. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think too, you know, most people would be thinking, okay, well, how am I going to pay it back? How am I going to pay the government back for their share? Mm. And there's a number of different ways. Um, obviously, you could start buying more of the property from the government um, or you could just simply leave it in the share-owned structure. But if you start earning more money, you're going to have to start paying it back, you know. Um, so it's sort of means-tested even after the purchase, yeah, really, isn't it? You have to, you mm. have to continue to qualify. Mm-hmm. Uh, also for the federal scheme, and there are some differences here, the Victorian one, is that you have to live in the property for two years. Which is good. You don't want investors suddenly taking advantage of this. Mm. You actually want it's about home ownership. Mm. So, um, yeah. So, so there are some re- restrictions there, and and definitely if your income does increase, you know that there's. I don't know how they work this out to be honest, because you have the way in which they want you to pay it back. As I think it's in five percent chunks. Um, oh, but then they're saying that when your income rises, you have to start paying it back. So I don't know if you have to start paying back in lump sums or whether you can actually just start paying a proportion. I, I, I'm not sure if the detail of that what has the been worked out is for it. Also, um, once the property is bought, the owner, you know, the purchaser has the option to start buying more of the property back from the government. So it's not like they have to wait to be told that they have to start mm. paying it back. There, there seems to be a mechanism there where they could voluntarily make payments, um, say if there's an inheritance or a, um, you know, a, a bonus paid or commission earned or something like that. But again, not sure on the detail in terms of whether you can only pay that back in 5% lump sums or pro- progressive payment plans, almost like a second mortgage if you, if you like, but it's not actually a, a, a mortgage. 
Um, or it appears that the other option is to simply leave the shared ownership structure in place. But I'm not sure how long that can be in place, Veronica. Do we have details on that yet? No, I think a lot of these sort of finer points will be sort of teased out. I think, too, when the property is sold, you need to pay back your share mm, mm. Uh, with commensurate proportion of the gain. Capital gain. Right. So, and that's something that's important too, because obviously, you know, when you're upgrading, you'd be thinking, well, you're not going to have all the equity in that property. You always have to be thinking, oh, and I know that I know the way our brains work. I'd be th- I'd be thinking, I don't want to give that money to the government that's mine, but it's not really <laughs> <laughs> it's almost the interest that you didn't pay to the bank. You kind of have to pay it back to them and that's how they're calculating it as, yeah. as part of the equity. And what I happens if it's sold at a loss? Well, yeah, that's and these are these Does are the some of the, de- the loss. These are mm. some of the details. Yeah, exactly. I don't know about I that. I would be happy about that as a rate payer. No, no. And so this is the thing. This is going to be funded taxpayer. by taxpayers, mm. right? And, of course, you want people to actually buy back their share from the government so that they can put money back in the pool and other people can benefit from it. So this is really, it's a leg up. It's a, I think it's a really good initiative, particularly for people who are on a lower income. Some arguments are that the, cap, the, the income caps are too high. You know, that they actually okay. let people in that can, they, they, all they're doing is forward, um, bringing forward people that would have already bought property, but you can sort of get into those sort of political or philosophical arguments, um, you know, You still have to be that. able to afford the mortgage. So you do. That, that's an, a very important piece. Just because your income sits within a, a price cap doesn't actually mean that the bank will lend you the money. No. Um, so so this, this isn't a, you know, guaranteed get into the market uh, despite your capacity to pay. The bank is still going to, whichever financier you go to, they are still going to assess you in the same way as they would any other loan that you apply for. Um, so just thinking, wow, I can take my, I've saved 10%, I can turn that into 2%, borrow more money, get a big, bigger, better house. Um, <laughs> you, you still have to be able to be assessed by the financier as being capable of servicing that loan with some interest rate rises. Um, so that buffer component is still going to be applied. Um, and, uh, and of course, we, we very much encourage people to have a, a financial pool of money, a buffer, in case interest rates rise unexpectedly or unexpected costs come in. So, and I guess because you're borrowing less... Um, potentially you could sort of squirrel away at your your offset account or building up that buffer so that when you do need to make those those payments back to the government, you know, you, you put, pull it out of that those funds, but in mm. the meantime, you're still paying down debt. So there's lots of ways, you know, there'd be good money management ways. Um, interestingly enough, I'm not quite sure whether there's any limits in terms of borrowing, who you get your borrowing from. Like who's oh, the in lenders, terms of the lenders. Yeah. So all yeah. this has got to be sort of, you know, it's got to be legislated. It's got to be actually brought to market. And I don't know if there's an ETA on that even, but it was an election promise. And so I would, and, you know, I would think that they've got to make good on that. Now there's 10,000 places. So, mm. you know, not a huge amount. In Victoria, their home buyer fund, um, that is slightly different. And that started, was it last year? Every year just seems to blur into each other. I've forgotten it does, actually. And since March 2020, I don't know where we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Not that bad. Um, it, uh, <laughs> it contributes. The Victorian fund actually contributes up to 25% of the, the property's purchase price and they reduce the minimum de- required deposit to 5% and, again, avoid the need to pay so lenders' to mortgage pay insurance. Lenders so it's a bit insurance. of a double mm. a double benefit there. It's like it's effectively giving you the back door to the, the federal government's, you know, home loan deposit guarantee as well as 
um, you know, helping you get into the market quicker, potentially in a better property um, and with a smaller mortgage, right? So there's lots of good things going for it. Um, but actually in Victoria for eligible Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander home buyers, that contribution goes from 25% up to 35% and the minimum required deposit is 3.5%. So they're required to have a lesser deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, and like with the federal policy, home buyer Buy fund will share any gains in the property's value as you would expect. Yep. The criteria include locations, so uh, metropolitan Melbourne, Geelong and um other eligible regional locations. They have a they have a whole list on the website. A list so, on the website, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll pop those in the show notes as well. Um, and of course, that's that's updated constantly. So always go to the most recent version of the government website. Uh, there is an income cap of one hundred and twenty five thousand for singles, so that's higher than the federal government cap, and two hundred thousand for couples. They must reside in the property, insure it, maintain it, and subject themselves to annual reviews. So these properties are actually going to be reviewed by some sort of panel, maybe a valuer um, along the way. Again, you still have to be able to service the loan with the financier that you take the money out with. There are price caps, so it's $950,000 for Metro Geelong or $600,000 for regional, so outside the Melbourne metropolitan area or Geelong. Community or existing, but not off plan. That's an interesting exclusion, isn't it? Yeah. And, of course, you've got to pay all the purchasing costs, rates and so forth, all those other costs that are associated with purchasing the property. Oh, yeah, and and owning it. The government doesn't pay 25% of your insurance bill or your your rates or anything like that. It's all on you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and on the surface of it, I think these schemes are a good initiative. Um, Just you don't have to buy a brand new. I know. I think this is a big differentiator, Veronica, from some of the other incentives that we've seen where it was you were forced into brand new. Yep. You can buy sooner with a smaller deposit. So that's a plus. The danger, and we would always put danger, Will Smith. Remember that from the um, most people won't, but yes, no, they won't. What was it called? <laughs> Lost in Space. It's yeah. really old, and I hated that show. But I did danger, danger. Anyway, some of those um, lines just stick with you, don't they? And they just pop into your head when you least expect it. That horrible robot. Anyway, being able to buy with a smaller deposit, and we have banged on about this before. You are at risk of negative equity, and negative equity means we're basically when you have to go and pay the bank, you know, if you had to sell, you would get less money than you owe the bank. Uh, that can happen too here because you're going to yeah. owe the government. And so I don't, as you asked earlier, I'm not not quite sure how it works out if what the property is worth less than what you paid for it. Yeah. We don't want you buying property that's going to be worth less than you, you paid for it. That's why we want you to you know, come on board with us and do the course and do the learn course. the fundamentals so you won't oh, do it's, that. It's, it's a key point, Veronica, is just because you can get into this a different way doesn't mean you compromise on the quality of the property. No. Oh, my God, no. You've still got to hold that as a fundamental. Which, in fact, is one of the benefits of it because it actually could allow you to get a better quality property than maybe you would have been able to under your own steam. You know, if you can buy a bigger home or a better home in a better location or a better type of home or not on a main road or, or whatever it is that you don't have to make the compromises that you would have had to make before. Like buying first home as a one-bedroom unit, it's sort of logical for a lot of people to think, okay, I'll get my first property as a one-bedroom Start unit small, and then I'll sell portable. that and then I'll be able to upgrade to the next one, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there are a lot of first properties that actually won't 
actually function as a stepping stone. They won't do the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this allows you to be more picky and actually gives you opportunity to go into a different type of property. And I think that's a good thing. And also because you may not need to upgrade as soon as you would have if you were only going to buy something a lot smaller. Turnover costs will be a little lower if if you've got a long-term view of it. Yeah, because that was one of the things that I thought, oh, God, what happens when you upgrade? When you go to upgrade, you have to give the government back their bit and then that's going to erode what you've got to spend on your upgrade. You know, so it might it will, not but help also, you. Also, on the other hand, you are actually into an asset and if it is performing well and you have done well in what you've purchased, you have the other 75%, is it, of capital yes. gains? Yes, yeah. The and, and potentially you've then managed to save a 20% deposit on a bigger, better property mm. when you go to upgrade Using by virtue of the increase in value. So that's, mm. the, that's the, um, the holy grail, I guess, and then shake the government off. And do it under your own steam <laughs> down the yeah. track. That's the goal, right? That's the There's goal. There's so many different ways to look at this pros and cons, but mm. but it, it but it is worth. I, I guess what we think is it is worth exploring, but exploring in the uh, I guess looking at your own circumstances. So not because someone else is doing it or someone else thinks it's a really good idea. Actually digging deep into the detail and seeing if it does actually suit your circumstances. How long are you going to be there? You know, mm. what, what is your plan? Where are you in your life stage? You know, could you outsave or could you save better than using the the, the government's shared equity? Um, if you're going to be there for a while, they might take more of of the equity side of things than you could have saved. So mm. there's lots and lots of things to think about there. Yeah, and I think. Having smaller mortgage repayments than if you'd actually borrowed. So say you did get, you know, a place in the government's, the federal government's 5% deposit guarantee scheme and you've got your 5% and you can afford the mortgage. Um, this is a way that actually will have you have smaller mortgage repayments and potentially pay it down and, and do other things and build a buffer. And it, it could be, a, might be, depending on your circumstances, Megan's saying, really evaluate this because it might offer you a safer way into the, pro- into the property market. Uh, as well. So so there are definitely some merits here and some things to consider. I think that it's not even so much that does it help you get in sooner, it's more does it help you buy better? And I think yeah, that's I a different way of looking at it. Yeah, that's a, that's a really different mindset. So just to sort of summarise, just some things to remember. You do have to pay the government back in lump sums. So depending on which scheme, it's like a minimum $10,000 mm. chunks or 5%. Um, and you can pay it off through remortgaging. So if you yeah. have bought your forever home and then you get to a point where your income's risen and et cetera, et cetera, um, yeah, you, and, and you've had good capital growth and you can remortgage, borrow, and you can afford that, then mm. pay the government that way. Um, or when you sell, if, you, if you're going to have to when you sell, I don't think there's an option on that one. <laughs> yes, you do. And, you know, you will have to start paying it back too if your income rises above the threshold. Mm-hmm. And you have to pay all the stamp duty and any related fees. All your normal purchasing costs are going to be in place. So don't just focus on that 5% number. If you're looking at the Victorian scheme, um, you, you actually have to think about, well, what what price property am I buying? What are the stamp duty costs associated with that or concessions, um, building and pest inspections and conveyancing and all of those sorts of other things, loan, loan establishment fees, valuations, these are all things, um, and we have we have a checklist for these sorts of things in the course. Uh, you, you you still have to have that money. You have to have that cash. Yep, you do. 
and you have to live in it for at least two years, once again, depending on the scheme. Um, so as long as you don't intend to relocate in the near future and you don't outgrow it too quickly, because if there is a risk if you have to sell it quicker than you otherwise would and, you know, and the market's not necessarily in your favour, you know, mm. you know, so you don't, you, you really do want to have a long-term view on this. You want to be in that property still for a long time. Um, and you really do still want to focus on a good asset that gives you that growth. And so never to take your eyes off that. It's never about just getting in the market at all costs. Veronica, are there any details yet on what happens if you do move out of it in less than two years? Um, no, I just don't think you can. In fact, I'm not even sure in Victorian one, um, it, it can get a bit com- complicated. I'm not sure you can move out. I think you can rent a room out, but I don't think you can move out. Just imagine so, that. Just imagine you're in. So here's another risk. Just imagine you're in a relationship, you've bought a property together and that relationship breaks down mm. and part of the financial settlement is the property needs to be sold. Yeah. This is you why know, those important things to think about, but you can't always anticipate those kinds of scenarios. No, but it's why we bang on about always focus on the quality of the property. That mm. That is your insurance policy against, you know, those circumstances forcing you to sell. You know, mm. you'll do the best you possibly can because you're focused on getting a quality asset. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been some private initiatives, all Melbourne-based, I will add. Interesting, um, isn't it? Yeah, in Melbourne had a lot of time to think about things during lockdown. Well, no, this isn't even before because we actually interviewed on the elephant in the room, we uh, interviewed a guy from Assemble Futures, um, which is one of these initiatives, um, back in 2018 about this. So, you know, maybe there's just more philanthropic, socially-minded developers Mm -hmm. down in Melbourne. I don't Mm -hmm. know. But, like, that is a rent-to-buy scheme. And so the developer actually effectively partners with a whole bunch of, I guess, like-minded investors, et cetera, that actually create a um, a development where people can rent securely for five years with the option of buying a home. So there's various price caps and all the rest of it. But I think, too, the developer being involved like that means you're going to have a better, well, the idea would be, you would think it'd be better quality design, better quality of finish and build than the traditional developer model of just basically build smack out the door. You know, fill them mm. up with first-time buyers and investors. So there's an, more of an investment, if you like, of the developer in the building and the complex itself. So that's Assemble Futures. We'll put the links but in the show notes. That's an interesting one, actually, because by the time you buy it, it's no longer a brand new property. So mm. it's it's come out of that um, risky period of negative growth. So, you know, certainly worth some research and investigation. They have waiting lists, I have to say. I mean, one, mm. probably the most famous one is Nightingale. And so that's a not-for-profit organisation. They provide apartments that are socially, financially and environmentally sustainable. Mm. And, you know, because they're saying basically they believe that homes should be for, built for people, not profit. So they're, they're all around those sort of those design, um, there's the design ethos. But And the location of these, these aren't all on the outskirts. You know, these are in places like Brunswick and, and you know, in the inner cities. And the very fact they've got this demand for them Mm. shows that they're doing something different as well they are giving people an opportunity to for home ownership but there's a community around this it's so much more than just buying your little piece of dirt or your your you know two bedroom two bathroom apartment with one car space this is this is really about subscribing to an ethos as well and there's another one called the property collectives um and their model is yeah like it's a self-build or building group so they actually allow future owners to sort of form a collective um, and they actually assume the role of developer and co-develop together. 
So that's that's sort a of even job when you haven't been in that kind of industry together. You'd want some fairly decent mentoring and guidance along the well, way. They're all templated. They're all you know. They're they're obviously um, they're not just a bunch of amateurs that sort of get together and work out how they're going to do it like on the block. I mean, this is <laughs> they are run by professionals, but but it is a really interesting idea to actually get people's buy-in. You know that those future owners buy-in from before they're actually completed is a really different type of idea. It is. And and if you're part of the build and develop stage of a property, you're going to have a fairly good eye on the quality side mm. of, of the build too. Mm. Interesting. I mean, it, it's just we have to think differently. Last night on a live cross with, on YouTube with Martin North and we were talking about the, how the uh, rental affordability crisis and, and we were really talking and digging deep into we have to think so differently mm. about housing now. It, it just can't be the traditional um, bricks and mortar purchase, live, sell uh, because it's not enough. There's not enough of what we've got. There's not enough where people want to live. We've got to think differently how we do this. So now I really applaud people that are thinking outside the square and, and looking at what can be done. It's got to be economically sustainable as well as environmentally sustainable and producing good quality products. So, you know, I, I love this. I love this new way of mm. thinking about housing. And you mentioned in your intro the Felinski report, which was the federal government's or previous federal government now's um, report on their they did a uh, what do you call it, an inquiry into affordability, and lot, some of their recommendations were around governments partnering with some of these organisations to facilitate you know much more in innovation in this space, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I agree with you. We've got to think differently. So. On the other, I mean, I guess when it comes to incentives and um, schemes that are designed for first home buyers, they're all sort of coming at it from this idea that, well, the biggest hurdle is a deposit, and and we know that it is. Yeah, but there are bigger, other, there are other hurdles, as we all know, and as you all know, as you're listening to this, you go, well, yes, it is a big hurdle, but it isn't the only hurdle, yeah. um, and so there are a number of. Ed- you know, the very first scheme, I guess, that really came out you know, publicly about the deposit accelerator was the 2019 election promise from the Liberal government, which was that federal government's first home buyer deposit scheme. Initially, there were 10,000 spots. Mm. Um, now, that's Increase been it. increased. Uh, and in fact, Labor, during the election campaign, agreed to match what Liberal said that they do. So now it's gone up to, well, will go up to, I should say, 35,000 places, including 10,000 of those specifically aimed at regional. Mm. So it gives, gives up to 25,000 places in, in non-regional, so metropolitan locations as well. Up to, because if there's more than 10,000 um, that apply and, and are successful in regions, there could be more than, than mm. 10,000 there. So it's a yeah. 5% deposit. So the, the, the Fed, we're talking about here about the federal government first home buyer deposit scheme. It's a 5% deposit is how much you've got to save. And the first home buyer scheme is available to single, again, there's caps, there always is, Singles earning up to $125,000 a year and couples earning up to $200,000 a year and price caps. Now, this is where I think they're really missing the mark here. They've got to catch (laughs) up with the marketplace. Um, Depending on where you are, it's about $800,000 in metropolitan New South Wales and goes down to about $350,000 in regional South Australia. So if you duck back to episode 76, we'll give you a bit more detail on that. But as always, you know, this is right on the 22nd of May when we're recording it, but by by the time it goes to air, um, which will be 
July, June, July, early July. You'll be listening to this and a lot of this will have changed, but the essence of it will will still be the same. It will have taken shape. It will have taken shape, won't it? (laughs) I think it's interesting, like you say, those price caps are a bit behind, aren't they? So mm-hmm. you, you say, right, if I take advantage of that, I can't, can't spend more than 800000 If I take advantage of the other one, I could go to nine fifty. That's if you're mm. in Sydney. Um, and the, the problem, of course, is this one requires you to borrow more money. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, you might be capped just by virtue of that. Yeah. Yeah, so I have to be able to service it, but then, you know, that, that's from a, just a few, pure cash flow. Can I afford to mm. pay this much extra money? But the bank has to also determine that you are capable, according to their policies and lending um, lending rules, you're capable to actually be in charge of that loan and, and servicing that loan with buffer for interest rate rises because we've got to keep in mind we are absolutely in an environment where we're going to see interest rates continue to increase. 100%. So. You know, it's 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 just reality. You can't stay at the bottom of the the lowest interest rates in you know recent history. You can't stay there forever. It's it's got no, to come back emergency emergency rates. But I guess <laughs> the big question is how many properties are actually under the price caps? So Tell if us. you're buying in ACT, and we've got the link in the show notes of where I got this information from. <laughs> Forget it. Only one percent of properties under the price cap. <laughs> Wow. And I'm so, going to imagine that they are on main roads. <laughs> you might you might earn you might earn the money all right. On, but on the you, railway line. You can afford the loan. <laughs> just can't find the property. <laughs> you actually have a better chance Passing in Sydney. I know oh, it's a joke, isn't it? Yeah, you actually have a better chance in Sydney where 14% of properties are under the cap. And the best chance in Greater Brisbane or Perth, as it turns out. The problem is, of course, I think a lot of those might be apartments. So you've got to be careful <laughs> once again what you're buying. That's priceless. Come on, oh, no. ACT. <laughs> it's expensive down there. Yes. And actually, I was doing some numbers on ACT um, as part of research last night, and I think they've had some of the uh, uh, up with Brisbane in terms of capital growth Mm. in the last 12 months and also in terms of rental price growth in the last 12 months. So I think ACT and Brisbane are the two that have had that that strongest level of growth over that 12-month period. So it is tough to get either a rental or a home to buy in, in the ACT. Yeah. Um, that's there's also the federal government family home guarantee. We won't go into great detail on that. It's sort of similar to the previous one, except it's for single parents and they can buy with a 2% deposit. Now, once again, though, they've got to have the income to afford the mortgage. I, and there's only a small amount of places for that. And I would think there'd be, you know, there, uh, I can't imagine a lot of people that'd be able to jump on that. I, I would think mm. that for them, that shared equity scheme would be a lot safer, mm. a lot safer. Um, and another one, because we don't talk too much about West Australia. Um, because they and I shut the borders. They didn't want to talk to us for a little oh, while. No, but then so they... It's they, they, nice to have power of the family again. But they did bounce back with the election and went, well, you know, Morrison, we they weren't real happy with you. over there. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't real happy with you, you know, being <laughs> mad at us for closing our borders. So, bugger <laughs> you, we're going to vote you out. Pretty safe um, over there. But key start, this is really interesting. So, it's not co-ownership. It's It's been in place for some time. Um, it's not in 89, I think, like a long time. Yeah. So, it's effectively the government becomes the lender. So, well, but it's a, a transitional like sort a, of arrangement, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they've got sort of like a um, government, I don't know, it's like it, they don't say it's the government lending you the money, but it's a government department that oversees the government 
institute, uh, I, you know, the structure of it, I'm a bit lost on. But anyway, it's but it's not meant to be that you bo- you borrow from them and then you you pay back that entire loan with that institution. It's meant to be transitional, meaning that once you qualify for a traditional loan, you'd refinance and get out of there and they'd make the money available for somebody else. Mm. So it's all designed to get people into the property market. It's a bit of a stepping stone, isn't it? We talk about stepping stone strategy and we have a tutorial on it, but it, it is a little bit of a stepping stone from the point of view that you need a minimum of 2% deposit and that means you don't have to pay LMI. Um, you do not have to be a first-time buyer you just can't own one right now. So, you know, we talked about this this almost lost sort of um, buyer pool, this, mm. this cohort that have owned properties and for whatever reason they are out of a property at the moment, whether it be relationship breakdown or, you know, they, they just had to, uh, maybe they've been overseas, moved back, maybe they're new to Australia. So you, you, you don't have to be a first-time buyer in Australia. You just can't own a property right now. Does that mean um, you can actually sell... Mm, does that mean you sell, can actually if, sell your existing property and then qualify for the scheme? Potentially. Although if you've done well, mind you, the market in WA has been a lot tougher than elsewhere over the last decade. Mm. They may not have done well. But if you've done well, then you won't need the scheme. This is, you know, this is for people with a low, very low um, deposit. So it's the idea is to, to, you know, get them into the market. Um they do have an only owner-occupier, so you have to reside in WA mm-hmm. and going to live in the property. Mm-hmm. Um, income limits yep. do apply. It doesn't have to be expect. new or existing. It, it, do- no, it can it be can, in your existing, yep. Veronica, which we your love. Existing. We, but you know what's sort of that interesting? That is a really good part. And I haven't got into what the income limits are for this because what is really interesting, we have the link there. You can go and have a look for yourself. That in every other um, incentive that has got an income cap, your income, and if there are, if they vary depending on where you live, you know, if you lived in Sydney, for instance, and you're buying in Sydney and you and you live in Sydney, your income cap would be higher than if you're buying in in regional New South Wales. That's typically what would happen, but not in WA. In Perth, the income cap is low, right, and it goes up, up to the highest in the Pilbara. Like they're a huge income cap in the Pilbara or um, Kalgoorlie, I think it is. And you think, mm, I wonder why that is. Those <laughs> big mining, the I, big mining dollars. Those big miners. Yeah. So they're actually saying we, we want you, know you to really buy in these regional that? areas. In the regional areas, yeah, to, to actually um, in, encourage purchasing rather than FIFO. Um, and, and, you know, because they want people to create communities in these locations. But I would hazard, I would hazard, have a look at past performance of property prices in those areas before you take advantage of such scheme because you you might get yeah. stuck there. Um, you might get and- stuck there, but also how long are you going to be there? That's a really, really important question is, is how long do mm. you plan to be in that job that you're in in that location? Yeah. Now, there's some private initiatives that have been cropping up in this sort of deposit um, accelerator space. And one, we're not actually going to mention the names of them because we don't, I don't want to encourage you to look them up because I don't, we don't like them thus far. There will be some good ones, I'm sure, but thus far, the ones we've come across, we're not that excited about. Um, the one that we won't mention is funded by developers. So, guess what you have to buy? Mm. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I know. It's like it's hello. Like, it's almost like spruiking on steroids, isn't it? 
we'll help you get in, but you'll pay that much more for it and it has to be our product. Yeah, I know. It's worse than buying a car and having to have it serviced at the dealer. You actually can have it serviced elsewhere, but in that situation, you're stuck. You're stuck um, with it, yeah. Yeah. Another one is a startup that CBA actually bought a share in, um, and we need to remember that commercial entities, particularly those that actually are on the stock market where you've got shareholders that expect a return, nothing wrong with that, but the problem is if they need mm. to turn a profit, they're seeing a market opportunity and the deposit hurdle. So I'm a bit cynical on this one. Don't about you. I like to think that there's social responsibility coming, becoming a lot more to the forefront in, with some of these larger entities. And I'm not saying that this is the way that they're expressing that, but I, I do think that there is an attempt by some, uh, some institutions to have a different look, to broaden their, the way that they look at housing and how housing is, is um, actually available to, mm. to households in, in the country. So I'll reserve judgment on this one. <laughs> there and look, we know of others in the wings, and we're sort of watching with bated breath because we do know that there are some conscious capitalism out there. There's, I'm actually a member of conscious mm. capitalism. Do you know that? Um, yeah. There are it some does conscious, exist, and yeah, and and, so, I, and I think the different. We, we, we don't want people to be cynical um, about everything. Oh yeah, but we do. Be no, be alert. <laughs> <laughs> be alert and research. If it looks too good to be true, there's a really good chance that it might be. So I guess that's what this is about is there's pros and cons to everything, but if you go into something eyes wide open, you're going in understanding the risks and you've probably should have mitigated for those risks in case something goes wrong. And it might not, but it might. But eyes wide open, I guess, is is the, the moral of the story. All right, I think we'll wrap it there, hey? And um, hopefully that's been helpful and we'll hopefully not too much has changed or, or come to the legislation that's changed the bare bones of those between when we're recording this and when you're listening to it. And uh, feel free to reach out, check out those links in the show notes anyway. Keep yourself up to date with what's, what's current. Hi, it's Veronica here. I've got a quick thing to add to this episode. The New South Wales government uh, launched an initiative to help first home buyers with a shared equity scheme after we actually recorded this episode, but before we released it. So I thought it would be useful to add it into the postscript here. We've also got a, a link in the in the notes to an article that outlines what's involved. But this is particularly important because what it does, it actually targets really targets those people who are really struggling the most to get into the property market. So single parents, older singles, as well as frontline workers like teachers and nurses and police will be able to buy their home with just 2% uh, deposit in a shared equity scheme. Very similar limits and caps, price caps to the federal shared equity scheme that's come out as a result of Labor winning um, office. And there's an extra 3,000 buyers that will be helped through this scheme. And so the basic mechanics are much the same, but I think it's really great because it's targeted specifically at those that are probably having the most difficulty at getting into the property market. But once again, the main concern is really making sure that you buy a property that is a good asset because with only 2% deposit, your risk of 
uh, negative equity is much greater, although the fact that the government is sharing in that risk, I guess, but um, they will actually give you shared equity of up to 40% of the property price for a new home or 30% for existing. Once again, we would definitely encourage you to err on the existing side of that rather than going for brand new. But I have to say, it's really great to see that sort of initiative. I really just wanted to add a quick note to this episode because it is so relevant. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.